0: We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. For those who haven't been with us, we started some weeks ago a series out of this book of Daniel, written about 600 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's written by a man who lives amidst great chaos. This man, Daniel, as a young boy or a young teenager, is taken from his land taken from his family, taken from his religion, and he's taken to a place that is altogether different. He's brought into captivity in a place about 700 miles from his home in a place called Babylon. And Daniel's going to learn what it is to follow God when you're in the minority. He's going to learn what it means to trust God when the world seems chaotic at best. He's also gonna find ways to serve and to honor the unbelievers in his midst, even in the most difficult of times. And what we're gonna see in Daniel as we continue to move forward is that God still has a plan for his people and God has a plan for the future. And this morning we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 4. If you've got a, a chair Bible, you'll find our passage on page 740 this morning. But before we get into this passage, would you join me for a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we do thank you for the opportunity we have to come into this place and to sing and proclaim of all that you have done. You are a God who is mighty to save, and we praise you and thank you that you are the one who came and saved us. But Lord, as we'll learn today, it is altogether altogether common for us as people to think that what we are living and what we are building is because of us, because of our great minds and our great strength and our great abilities. We begin to forget that you should receive all the glory and praise that it is you who put us in the places and the roles that we find ourselves so lord i pray today that this would be a time for all of us including myself where we would be convicted about the kingdoms we seek to build the glory and the honor we seek to steal from you And Lord, I pray that we would recognize the grace and the patience and the long-suffering that you extend to the people of this world, that you give warnings and give opportunities for change to take place. And I pray, Lord, that today that people would turn back to you and would give you the glory that's due your name. I pray, Lord, that this passage will serve as preparation for our time around your table as we partake of your elements, reminded of your sacrifice, and that it would move in us and cause us that in everything we say and everything that we do, that we would bring glory and honor to you. Be glorified in this place, and I pray that everything I say will, in fact, bring you the honor and glory that is due to you. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Well, last week we came to a story, a moment in history where three men stand strong for God, stand strong for their convictions, stand strong amidst all kinds of temptations to give up and to give in. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, and if you're unaware of it, to go back and to see it is amazing and how God meets His people in the fiery furnace and how God not only meets them but saves them and turns an entire kingdom seemingly back to God. God. But as we turn the page to chapter 4 in our Bibles, we have this little area of light between the end of the words of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And it's in that space, in this division of text, that there's much we need to talk about before we even get to the words that start in verse 1. In that little space, and I was going to measure that space, I mean, it's millimeters of space speak volumes a couple reasons why and you won't maybe even know it as you read uh, the text but number one Daniel in Daniel 1 through Daniel chapter 3 writes in Hebrew to the Hebrew people to the Hebrew captives and he's telling them the stories of God's renown and God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's greatness to the captives but in chapter four, and, and for a handful of the next chapters, he's going to stop writing in Hebrew and start writing in Aramaic, which would have been the language of the Babylonians. It would have been the trade language of the day. In fact, what is happening is, as Daniel's saying, the message of Daniel 1 through3 is most important to a Jewish audience. But now in Daniel chapter 4 and beyond until the latter chapters of Daniel when he'll pivot back to Hebrew, he wants all of the known world to hear these words, which tells us today what we are going to hear is important for the Christ follower and it's important for the person who maybe has walked into this place and doesn't know anything about what God is doing and what He demands of his creation number two we need to recognize in between that little white area between chapter 3 and chapter 4 maybe you write down notes in your Bible this would be a good note to write down about 20 to 25 years has spanned between chapter 3 and chapter 4 because the weird thing would be it's like well Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden does an about-face and as we read it we think that it happens like the next afternoon but it doesn't. A lot of time has transpired. Nebuchadnezzar, no doubt an older man, is now years beyond, decades now beyond the story of Daniel chapter three. He has forgotten his words of affirmation, his words of allegiance and worship to the God of heaven. The next thing that we need to see is that chapter four has one of the strangest occurrences that happens. Because we're going to learn that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to be brought low and he is going to, by the hand of God, be turned into that like an animal. He's going to act like an animal. He's going to think like an animal. He's going to eat and drink like an animal. And that just seems strange to us. And we'll talk about that as well. Finally, I believe that the most important thing that we see as we move into chapter four is that God's got a word for us. God wants to speak to us. When I was growing up, there was an ad for a brokerage firm called E.F. Hutton. How many remember E.F. Hutton? Okay, so we got an old congregation here. And in the ads, there was a slogan that would say, and the slogan came because what they wanted was They wanted people to trust and believe and listen to their advice and the slogan went like this when EF Hutton talks everyone listens people listen you got it and the idea in the ad campaign was when there was a stock tip that EF Hutton had you would stop what you were doing and you would incline your ear to listen and so they would put in periodicals and magazines pictures like this that all of a sudden a person was going to share what E.F. Hutton had said and everybody started to turn their attention to crane their bodies towards the person who was talking because they wanted to listen what was going to be said was of great importance Daniel chapter 4 my friends is a moment when God speaks Now, God speaks throughout his Bible, but I will say God speaks in such a unique way in Daniel chapter 4 that it would be altogether good and altogether wise for all of us to turn off every distraction and turn. The Bible uses this phrase, to incline our ear to listen. And so my hope and prayer is, as I have done with each of the other two services, is that we would incline our ears and we would get whatever wax is out of our ears so we can hear what God is saying. In Daniel chapter four, we got 40 some verses of what transpires. And we'll hit major highlights of those verses. But let me just tell you the overarching story. King Nebuchadnezzar is at the height Of his kingdom life couldn't be better and one day he is reclining in his palace enjoying all that he says he has created and he begins to fall asleep and just as he had in Daniel chapter 2 Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it's a dream that scares him it's a dream that alarms him and the dream goes like this there was this tree that grew rapidly and grew great, and it was strong, and its heights went to the kingdom of heaven. It was so big and so grand all the world could see it. And it was such a great tree that the tree was sustenance for the whole world, that they ate from its fruit. The animals lived under its shade, and it was the source of great good in the world. And at its peak, at its finest moment, an angel came in this dream. And an angel announces that the tree needs to be chopped down. And the angel begins to chop down its tree, at first by cutting off its limbs, and then cutting the trunk, and leaving only the stump in the ground. And then the voice says that this tree is not a tree, but it's a person. And we start seeing personal pronouns of he and him, which freaks out Nebuchadnezzar all the more. And he begins to hear words like, you're going to become like the beast of the field. You're going to wallow on the ground, and your body will be wet with the dew of the earth. You will grow hair and talons, and you will do so for seven periods of time, and your kingdom will be stolen from you. Well, this dream freaks out Nebuchadnezzar. He goes to his magicians, his enchanters, all those who he knows who could interpret the dream. And like Daniel chapter two, they're unable to do so. So he brings the one who he knows who can interpret the dream when no one else can. Belteshazzar, Daniel, comes back into the picture. And Daniel says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. And you're about to be chopped down. And God says to you today, Turn from your evil ways. Turn back to God. Recognize and give homage to God. And maybe, just maybe, he'll give you grace and mercy. King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. A year later, he is pontificating about his greatness and goodness. And while the words are still on his mouth, calamity befalls him. God takes his mind from him. He then, because he loses his mind, begins to think he's an animal, and the very things that the dream said for seven periods of time, King Nebuchadnezzar would lose his kingdom, would act like an animal until he would turn his attention back to God. This dream and this storyline could be interpreted or applied, maybe is a better word, applied in a lot of different ways. First of all, you may wanna write this down. It could be applied globally. And that is that King Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of us as a society, as us as a human race. And that God is saying celestially and cosmically from the heavenlies, human beings, stop building your kingdom, stop building what you think is yours, and turn back to me before it's too late. This could be applied to us as a nation. Where we could say that King Nebuchadnezzar serves as a fitting example of our haughtiness as a country. That we are the greatest, we are the strongest, we are the most powerful. And yet, we are building a kingdom unto ourselves. And could it be said to us as a nation that God could say as he did to Nebuchadnezzar, repent before judgment comes. Could it be said of us as a church? Could the church have the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar in it that we, thinking we might be building God's kingdom are really building a kingdom for ourselves? Could this be a scheme of vanity that your elders and your pastors have built up that has nothing to do with God and everything to do with them? Could it be that we start reading our press of the massive growth that we're seeing in our campuses and the renown that we are receiving from around our area and in the nation of the great church that we are, and we begin reading that and thinking, look at what we've created. And could it be that God's saying village before it's too late, change your ways. Daniel chapter 4 is a picture. If you were to take it in that direction and apply it that way, it could serve as what Revelation 1 through 3 does when Jesus comes and speaks to the churches of Asia Minor. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to put ourselves in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes individually, personally. And I want us to ask the question this morning because a lot of times we do in the campus pastors and teaching team, we're talking about this in these last weeks. We want to put ourselves in Daniel's shoes. In Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes. We're the holy ones. We're the righteous ones. But has it ever dawned on us that we might be in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes? that a spirit of Nebuchadnezzar could be living within us? And you say, well, wait a minute. I'm saved. I, I pronounced allegiance and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar's done that on two different occasions where he's given allegiance and homage to God First in the interpretation of the first dream in Daniel chapter 2 And then second in Daniel chapter 3 When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego after being thrown in the fire are rescued by God Are not singed and then that fourth individual shows up in the flame Nebuchadnezzar gives homage to God 20 some years have now passed And the old Nebuchadnezzar is alive and well And there's some lessons that we can learn through this Lesson number one that we need to learn through this Is we boast, we talk, we announce, we declare About what we are building So I want you to notice in this And we'll get to the text for those that are saying Okay when do we get to the actual text We'll get there but I want you to highlight a couple things. This chapter is all about kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and God's kingdom. And those kingdoms are in conflict with one another. Seven times in our text, we're gonna see the word kingdom come out. Five times we'll see the word authority come out. And three times we'll see the word dominion. And so we've got these words that talk about power, authority, building of kingdoms, and it begs the question this morning, are you competing with God's kingdom in building your own kingdom, or is the kingdom you're building in concert with God's, meaning you're all about His kingdom? Notice in verse 4, the storyline begins like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Let's just stop there and recognize that what we have is a guy who has it all. He's accomplished all that he could have ever thought of or imagined. And he loves what he sees. And notice he has everything. And move down to verse 30. And it says this. That the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now let's stop there for a moment, folks. And let me ask you this question this morning. Does that define your life? as you sit in your prosperity, as you sit in your acclaim, your renown, does it begin to dawn on you at times, whether in word or in thought, look at what I've created. Look at what people say about me. Look at all the majestic things I've done. The awards and trophies I've accumulated the promotions that I've received at work, the contracts that I have gotten the customer to sign off on. Look at how great I am. Notice Nebuchadnezzar speaks of himself. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, over and over and over again. So let me ask you, you say, well, how do I know if I'm building my own kingdom? What do you talk about? King Nebuchadnezzar only talks about what he is doing. And some of the things that we're building all are not altogether bad. Notice that then when God speaks about his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he says this kingdom has done great good. It's not all bad. The animals find their shade there. The people of the earth find their sustenance there. What King Nebuchadnezzar had built wasn't altogether an evil thing. And some of us are building what we believe to be good empires. And we are continually looking at our balance sheet, asking the question, is this adding to my kingdom? So where's my finances? Where am I at career-wise? Where, where's my family? And we boast about the things like that. So some of us, our kingdoms are about our job. They're about what we do. And so we go to our kingdom every Monday through Friday, and it's about building our name. Building our business, building our portfolio. Some of us are busy building uh, an empire of financial wealth. And so you're on your phone all the time looking at the 401k and looking at your stocks and saying, Look at, if I continue to, to do this, look at how much I'll be worth at this day and at this moment. And you prognosticate and you talk about and you research and you develop all of these things because you want to build a financial kingdom. So others, it's, it's about your family. I think a great many, this is maybe not the, the first two maybe aren't where, where, where ladies find themselves, but when we get to the family, the home, the kids are our trophy, their achievements. And so we can't wait to communicate on social media, look at what my kids have done look at the kingdom i've built because it reflects the majesty of the kind of parent i am look at look at the trophies of my kingdom my empire and these are the things we talk about and it never dawns on us it never comes to a place where we ever reiterate the words of god that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will. It doesn't dawn on us when we go to work that we wouldn't have this job. We wouldn't have the ability to do the things the job requires if God didn't give it to us. We wouldn't be able to create wealth if it wasn't God. We wouldn't be able to have the athletic or academic prowess that we would have. Recently, a man of similar age as mine, a peer of mine, suffered a debilitating stroke. In talking with him and those around him, the stroke was because a little clot, one that it would take a microscope to see entered his bloodstream and in the wrong place lodged itself in a blood vessel around his brain and he went from having all of his life put together to moments of being an infant. A microscopic little clot did the great human being like you and I in. Do we understand how finite and frail we really are? But the Bible says that the tongue boasts great things. And Nebuchadnezzar's here and he's boasting great things. And could it be said of us this morning? Could it possibly be said of us that we boast far too much about ourselves and not God? And this is a cautionary tale for us to cease and desist the kingdom building that we're doing for our name and our renown and for our greatness. And to see that that type of kingdom building will bring one thing, and please hear me this morning, it will bring the judgment of God. Why? Because God says, I'm the only one who has a kingdom. I'm the only one who has an empire. I'm the only one because I created this world and this cosmos out of uh, nothing by the power of my word. I'm the one who sustains it so little man, puny woman, who are you to think that you are all that you say you are? And God says, I'll have no one else in competition with me. And God says, I want to give you time to change your ways. Nebuchadnezzar is a petulant little child who thinks that they know more than mom or dad. And mom and dad says, I will not allow you to speak this way i will not allow you you don't you don't know how little you really are and so what happens when we boast about the kingdom we are building we need to know and recognize it's an altogether good thing for god to bring us down to size we need to be brought down to size that's the second lesson we learned this morning and it's good what nebuchadnezzar is going to experience is altogether a good thing now here's the amazing thing about god's judgment this is where we're going to land in this there are truths about god's judgment for us that we see in nebuchadnezzar's life 12 months before the judge before the judgment comes the warning is given All that's going to transpire, that God said was going to transpire, does in fact happen, but it happens months later. And so what God's about to do is He says, as He said in the dream, I'm going to chop you down, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to chop you down. And some 12 months later, God takes the axe into His hand and steps up to tree Nebuchadnezzar. And he begins to swing that celestial axe. And with each hit, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom comes crashing down. What truths do we need to know about this? Write these down. These are important because if we allow these truths just to pass by us, we learn nothing. Truth number one God always warns about judgment before it comes. God always warns about his judgment before it comes. In essence, what King Nebuchadnezzar is being told in the dream is, change, repent, stop building your kingdom, cease and desist. And God does this all throughout the Bible. Did you know that it took 120 years for Noah to build his ark? And the Bible says during those 120 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he declared to the world, both in word, repent, the flood is coming, and in picture, there's the boat. It's almost built for 120 years. Warn the inhabitants of the world, change, because judgment is on its way. God by his grace to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt said God's judgment is on its way and through plague after plague they hardened their heart and said no my empire and my kingdom is more important than listening to the voice of God even if I stare the movement and hand of God eye to eye and so judgment upon judgment preview upon preview How about the people of Jericho? For seven days, the Israelites went around that walled city, each day giving an opportunity for the people of Jericho to lay down their arms and to turn to the living God, and they don't. And then on that seventh day, seven times they had opportunity. The graciousness and the loving kindness of God. Change your ways, turn from your evil ways stop building your kingdom and start living in my kingdom and the people of Jericho say no is it always a no the answer is no because we know that a lot of no's there by the way we know that in the book of Jonah God gives 40 days to the people of Nineveh and upon the preaching an eight-word sermon from Jonah the reluctant prophet the people of Nineveh turn to God and God gives grace and we could say, listen, had Nebuchadnezzar repented, the last part of this chapter wouldn't have happened. In fact, he, he says that. He says that at the end of verse 27. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And then we see God's goodness that when He does, after the judgment comes, and He finally is brought back to a sound mind, that it says that the glory of His kingdom, His majesty, His splendor returned to me. My counselors, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Listen to me, if you walk away from this service that God finds great joy and some morbid uh, excitement from destroying people, the answer is you don't know the love of God. But the long-suffering and loving kindness of God has its limits. And God says that one day, His loving kindness will come to an end, and it will be judgment. So notice... The speed by which this judgment comes This is another truth While he is pontificating It says in verse 28 All this, all the judgment of God Came upon King Nebuchadnezzar At the end of 12 months He had 12 months to change his ways Seemingly 365 some odd days Probably not to the very point But at the end of 12 months He's on his roof And you would think He would have learned his lesson And the king said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And it says, And while he was still talking, a voice from heaven came down and said, It's over. It's done. The Bible tells us that a day in the future, God will say, It's done. And with a trumpet sound of God, There will be no new opportunities. No do-overs. The judgment of God will come. And when it comes, let us understand, friends, that when God does cut you down to size, when he cuts me down to size, because of our kingdom and empire building, know this, it will be embarrassing, it will be painful, and it's usually public. It is embarrassing, it is painful, and it is usually public. So what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar? As he shares that while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. From men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like that of bird's claws. Just like that. It all happens immediately, and it is public, and it is painful, and it is embarrassing. The king loses his mind. The king is driven from his kingdom. Do you think his subjects were like, oh, it's too bad, so sad. The king's having a tough time. No, people gloated over it. The great king Nebuchadnezzar, look at him now. He looks like a beast. He eats like a beast. He acts like a beast. And they mocked him for seven periods of time. I cannot tell you the holy terror you feel when you see this firsthand. When you see God's judgment and his discipline upon people. Not too long ago, I was brought into a situation of a church that was having conflict And I was brought in to be a third party, a mediator, to the church conflict, and it revolved around um, accusations about the pastor having an inappropriate relationship. And the pastor would speak to me. I spent hours and hours with him, looking him in the eye, and he'd say, "Pastor, these are lies." And he spoke some of the most uh, the darkest things about the people who were bringing the accusations towards him. And I'll tell you, he was altogether reliable and trustworthy. He said all the right things. And I'd come home and tell Amanda, I, I don't think he did it. I don't think he did it. There's no, I don't have any evidence to, to say it. And, and man, these are terrible people that are bringing these accusations to this pastor. He's trying to be faithful. And I'd say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I need a solemn moment of wisdom. And at a time that you couldn't have rehearsed or written with human hands, that man's empire came crashing down. In a way, if I could tell you how it happened and Amanda's a witness, we are driving and his life collapsed because God said, it's time, it's over, I'm done. And that man lost, in many ways, parts of his marriage. He lost the respect of his children. He lost his church. He lost his pastorate. He lost the opportunity for ministry. He lost the, the good thoughts of the community around him. He lost everything. And the question will be, will he say it's not my kingdom, but it's God's? And I'm telling you, when that moment happened, tears welled up in my eyes and shivers went down my spine and I started confessing to God. Because it is a dreadful thing To fall into the hands of the living God And we need to take solace in the fact That God gives time He gives time And maybe right now You're living your best life now And God says little do you know As he did in Luke chapter 12 That today I demand your life I demand your soul You think you can eat, drink and be merry But God says today Today I will demand of you One final truth that I want you Two more truths I want you to know Is that God will bring you down In proportion to the level that you raise yourself up and so why does God do this heinous thing of making such a mockery of King Nebuchadnezzar? Because Nebuchadnezzar had made a mockery of God. And God doesn't mess around, friends. He doesn't mess around. And so maybe, maybe you're not to the level of Nebuchadnezzar. Praise God. And maybe his judgment and his discipline might be a little, a little more kinder. A little less public, a little less painful. But let's look at what happens. He becomes an animal. He becomes an animal. And, and as we read that, we're like, oh, come on. Come on. This is where the Old te- I don't buy the Old Testament. This doesn't happen. Well, Josephus, the ancient historian, believed this event happened. He writes about it. And he says that this event, this idea of King Nebuchadnezzar becoming like an animal, was real history. But let's, come on, this is back uh, We're 2600 years from that. We are so wiser So much wiser and, and smarter And so much more advanced I'll turn your attention to the screen we'll read from the National Library of Medicine Something called lycanthropy It's the unusual belief or delusion In which a patient thinks that he or she Has been transformed into an animal This is modern medicine And you're like Well, does anybody really believe that? Just type lycanthropy in your Google and you're gonna see pictures like this. You'll see individuals that look like this. And we laugh and we say, well that's crazy. Well it is crazy, it's a delusion that you created in the image of God would lower yourself, would give yourself over to such a depraved mind to think that you're an animal. To make yourself look like an animal and act like an animal, and these are just two examples. And listen, we talk about the spirit of Babylon in our culture today. What is one of the things that we hear our young people dabbling in? And we've made a, we're great at taking ancient sins and making them sound really good. They're called furries—people acting like animals and we laugh and we think it's funny. Is it not the judgment of God? Is it not God giving us over to our sins and our appetites? This is what he says, you who are my creation, you want to be brute animals in your sexuality and sensuality and your pursuits, then I'll give you a mind over to it and so you can devalue yourself to that kind of nonsense. So we gotta be careful that we're living in this world today The final thing that I want you to see about God's judgment is God's judgment is not done when we say so, but when God says so. Seven seasons of time. Notice in verse 25, seven periods, seven seasons. Some interpret it seven years. We don't know. Most Bible scholars believe that these seven periods of time probably speak in a double way about the amount of time, but the completedness of time. That meant God's judgment was going to be complete and so God had determined these periods of time for Nebuchadnezzar's judgment to be made complete and there's a grace in that now let's be honest King Nebuchadnezzar would say I wish it would have been done in the first week he probably wanted it to be done the first day but God said this time needs to be completed And I will determine it. Listen to me. And I, listen, I want to be, I do not want to be brazen in this, but there's a time coming, my friends, where God's judgment will be perfected for all eternity. Where God will say, my grace and mercy have found their end. And great and small, the book of Revelation says, will stand before the throne. And God will say, Depart from me. Not for one season of time, not for two or seven seasons of time, but for all eternity. His judgment and his anger against sin will go on and on and on. So, the great thing here in Daniel chapter 4 is God's judgment lasts for seven seasons of time, it has an end. And maybe in that season, maybe you find yourself in the judgment of God, the discipline of God. Know that he loves you. He's giving you an opportunity that he's warning you to cease and desist. And we've got a choice in this moment. We do it before his judgment comes or we do it while we're on earth, while that judgment is happening and God will allow his judgment to come to a fullness where we will be made like his son. And so here's what happens. After uh, seven seasons of time, it says at the end of the passage, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. I am nothing. He is everything. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. So how is he going to respond this time around? Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and all his ways are just, and all those who walk in pride, he is able to humble." And then what seems backwards to all of it, scholars believe that verses 1 through 3 are an addendum that is put at the front of the chapter that really shows up at the end of the chapter that he gives a declaration to all the people in verse 1. Nations and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Instead of being tyrannical, now he is benevolent. It seems good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? The last words of Nebuchadnezzar are words of worship, are words of praise. Is he saved or not? That's up to you to decide. I'm more worried about my own salvation than other people's salvation. But man, what a way to finish. And it begs this final lesson to us that we boast and declare what we are building in this life. And therefore, it's good for God to bring us to size, down to size. And it reminds us of this truth, bringing God glory is the only way we can live. So friends, as you look at your little kingdom, as I look at my little kingdom, is it about me? Or is it about God? Am I speaking and proclaiming? Am I more like the early parts of Nebuchadnezzar or the latter parts? Am I giving the glory that is due God's name? That I give Him praise, that I recognize without Him, I couldn't do this. There are so many things that are out of my control that are in the hands of God for me to do the very thing I'm doing right now. So for me to think, wow, look how great you are, Tim. All these people listening to you. You are so great. It takes three times to get the amount of people to come and listen to you. And little do I know, God, all he has to do is go boop. And I'm gone. Or worse, he just touches my life. And my mind is taken from me, and I act like the craziest, wildest person, and I am brought to mockery and shame. So let's stop living, building our kingdoms. And let's remember another king. The worship team is going to come forward, and we're going to pivot to our time of communion. And, and we've heard from one king. But there was another king 600 years later who would come. His name was King Jesus. And King Jesus came and he could have done whatever he wanted. He's the king of the universe. He's perfect. He's almighty. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. But King Jesus didn't extol and, and exalt himself. The book of Philippians says he became nothing. He humbled himself even to the point of being obedient to death on a cross. And we have a choice. Will we live for our kingdom or will we submit to his kingdom? And what our king says in that kingdom is this, when you submit to me, I'll save you. When you submit to me, I'll cover your sins when you submit and make me Lord of your life and ruler over your kingdom I'll never leave you or forsake you I'll watch over you I'll protect you I will lead and I will guide you and the way he did that is by going to the cross and being obedient to the Father and God said that because of that obedience That Jesus' name is above every other name and that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now here's the thing. We'll either do it in this life or we'll do it in the life to come. We'll do it in this life and receive grace and mercy and salvation or we will do it in the life to come and receive condemnation and judgment and an eternity separated from God. And so this morning, if you have bowed the knee to King Jesus, and you have trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you have said with your mouth and with your life, I follow King Jesus. I don't do it perfectly, so I ask for forgiveness where I fall, but I want to follow King Jesus, and I welcome you to this table. And the Bible says that before we partake of these elements, we should examine our hearts. I think it would be good for us as the worship team plays, that we would examine our hearts and ask, what are we building today? Is it about us or is it about Christ? And could it be that we need to bring judgment onto our own lives so that God doesn't have to bring judgment? And it means that we will give him glory for it.